0: Before we get to Mark chapter 12, at the very end of that chapter, I wanted to lead us in in a time of prayer, and I wanted to share with you, I wanted to share with you something that I was writing out in my prayer journal this morning as I was praying for our church family, as I was thinking about God's work in my own heart, and and what I was writing about in my prayer journal this morning and and praying for you all and, and just for us together, there's a tension that I sometimes feel in my own life and, and I know it exists in church life between we talk about God's daily faithfulness. Like part of the Christian life is just we're going to wake up tomorrow on Monday and we're going to seek to honor the Lord in whatever small opportunities he puts in front of us. And, and one of the things I think we do so well here at Emmaus is we just want to focus on consistent, long-term, slow faithfulness to the Lord. We, we want to do that. At the same time, As God's spirit is moving, there's something that comes within us. There's this desire of, God, give me more. (laughs) Like, God, I, I want to experience your power. I want to experience your greatness. And there's those moments of celebration. There's those moments of desire for revival. And you may have seen things on social media this last week about God's spirit moving in different areas. And there's this desire, God, we want to experience your power. We need your daily faithfulness. We want to be consistent every day in doing all of those small things really well, and at the same time, we have this desire, God, do more. God, work in power, bring people to salvation. Draw your church to repentance. Draw your church to worship and prayer. Help us to go out and care for people and spread the gospel and meet needs. God, we wanna do those things, and we know you're faithful right in the middle of all the small things. And so my desire for us as a church is we would see God's faithfulness, his daily consistent faithfulness, and we would see God's power not in competition but working together. That as a church family, as Mayus, as individual Christians, your commitment, your desire would, God, help me be consistently faithful every day, and God, I want more of you. <laughs> God, do revival. Bring your power of your spirit. Lead us to more that you have for us. And so I just want to pray about that together as a church, God do that kind of work in our lives and our church. And then we're gonna look at a passage of scripture here at the end of Mark chapter twelve. All right, let's pray together. God, my heart is so burdened right now for for our church family, for my life, for our nation, our world god i love this church family god thank you for your faithfulness to us over so many years god thank you that we can be a place of peace and stability and consistency and god at the same time we cry out in prayer and praise god that your spirit would move in power god that you would draw people to salvation that you would restore families god that you would draw us to repentance as your people that you would send us out And God, we thank you for those winds of revival that that blow in our nation, that are blowing around the world in so many unseen areas. And God, we pray that as revival happens, as your spirit moves, that that would lead us to more and more daily faithfulness, just being consistent in what you called us to do as people who follow Jesus. God, thank you for your work in our church. God, we pray for more. We pray for direction. We pray for power. We pray for vision. God, use your word. Work through the power of your spirit. Do a good work among your people. And God, right now, help us to focus our hearts on your word. God, open us up to what you want to say to us through scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you a picture on the screen as we get started here this morning. This picture up here is a set of temples from the southeast part of Asia in Cambodia at a place called Angkor Wat. The summer after... I graduated college. So I went to Oklahoma Baptist University and graduated in 2004. That summer of 2004, I went with a group of students to Southeast Asia, and we were in this area of Cambodia near these temples, uh, in an area of Cambodia called Siem Reap. And so we were in this area of Cambodia, and we would go and visit these temples, and in the process, we got to make connections with some of the young Buddhist monks in the area, and we were teaching English to a school where most of the students were being trained in tourism because there were a lot of tourists coming to see these temples, see this area of Southeast Asia, to to come to Cambodia after terrible atrocities that they experienced in the 70s and 80s. And so all these students where we were teaching English, they were learning hospitality and tourism and things like that. And one of the students that we were talking to one day, he was talking about how excited he was about all these people who were coming to his country and how he had this huge opportunity in front of him with tourism and hospitality. But then he made the point, our temples are beginning to crumble. They're beginning to fall apart just because of age. And there was in this moment this this opportunity to to provide not only a teaching lesson for him, but, but also in my own heart, What does it look like when you base your future on something that's crumbling and falling apart? What does it look like when all your future job prospects and the hope for your country, and honestly where your pride and and your nationalism is found, what, what does it look like when you're putting all your confidence in something that ultimately is crumbling and falling apart? And can I just remind you, That's not a Cambodia problem, that's a heart problem. That's every one of us problem. That's a right here, right now sort of issue. Am I basing my future? Am I boasting in, am I finding my pride in something that is actively falling apart, that's crumbling? Mark chapter 12, let's look at this together. We're gonna start down in verse 38 and build some momentum with this. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Jesus is teaching here And as he's teaching, he reintroduces us to a group of people where he says, beware of the scribes, okay? So from the very beginning here, we have this caution that Jesus is putting in front of us. This is gonna drive the rest of this passage. He says, beware of the scribes. Who are these scribes? They are the religious leaders, the religious authorities, the teachers, a lot of them were the Pharisees, but not all were Pharisees, but these were the top-level religious authorities and leaders. And Jesus says, be careful. Beware of those who find themselves in a place of religious authority and and religious teaching. You, You need to be aware of what's going on there. I wanted to put in front of you something that I think will be helpful for you. I know it's been really helpful for me is this idea of how do I evaluate someone who's in a place of spiritual leadership or spiritual teaching? How do we identify false teachers? How do we identify people that you're like, ooh, major yellow flags, like we need to be careful there. And if it feels awkward that a person standing on stage teaching about a religious topic is saying, we gotta be able to evaluate religious teachers, Let it feel awkward, and also let it feel like all ten fingers need to point back at me. Like, we we need to be really careful how we approach this topic. How do you evaluate, how can you beware of someone who is in a place of religious authority or teaching? Focus on their content, their character, and their community, who is around them. So the content, what they're teaching, and you see this little plus sign, minus sign, multiply sign, divide sign. Let me give you something that's really helpful for evaluating religious teaching, okay? If the teacher adds to scripture, if the teacher subtracts from who Jesus is, if the teacher multiplies the requirements for salvation, or if the teacher likes to divide up the church into small chunks, so if you're not part of their little part of the church, you're not really a Christian or you're not really a part of the church. So if they add to scripture, if they subtract from who Jesus is, that he's not fully God, fully human, if they multiply what's required for salvation, in other words, in order to be saved, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and then you're really saved, or if they divide the church, major alarms, major yellow flags going off. You're, you're looking for that content, but we know that in the New Testament, it's not only content that determines a person's teaching, it's their character It's what as well. It's how are they living their lives? Does their, do their lives show the fruit of God's spirit and God's word? And who do they bring around them? We know you can learn a lot about a person by who they put around them. Are these just yes men? Do they never receive criticism? Do they never receive feedback? Do they only have people around them who worship them and who like to be around them? Who is around somebody tells us a lot about what's going on in that person's heart. And so when you're evaluating a leader or you're evaluating a teacher, what do they teach? What's their character and who's around them? And Jesus here says, beware of the scribes. Why? Why to beware of the scribes? What's going on here? Look at the next part of verse 38, the second half there. They like to walk around in lawn robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. <laughs> Now, if you're just wanting one word to write over the top of this, and we're gonna to get to this in a few minutes, it's the word pride. This is what's going on here. But this idea here is they like lawn robes. These robes were special religious garments that were given in certain situations, and the scribes, they like to wear them all the time. Uh, so this is the person that wears their jersey in situations you probably shouldn't be wearing your jersey in, you're like, hey, The jersey's cool in the field, and maybe for a little while in high school and college, and then you gotta put that thing up. Like, you've you've aged out of that jersey. Um, This is the idea that they had these religious garments, and they would wear them in a way that they wanted people to be impressed. This is the ultimate show me, look at me type of mentality. They're They're caring about their appearance. They wanna look impressive. They like greetings in the marketplaces. If you didn't refer to them as rabbi or teacher, they felt dishonored. So this is the person that you have to refer to them in exactly the right way or they feel disrespected or dishonored. Kids, kids in the room, it's important to speak respectfully to adults, okay? We're not saying that. It's it's important to speak the way your parents teach you to adults, but this is the type of person who even wants the adults to defer to them or you have to refer to them exactly the right way. They have to have the best seats in the synagogues. What does this look like? Well, in the synagogue, there was a set, a row of seats at the front that faced toward the crowd. And if you sat here at the front, you were in a place of superiority, you were in a place of judgment, you were judging the people who were listening to what was going on. So if you can imagine a row up here, we're a good Baptist church, most people hate the front row, I've got a few people in the front row, but an ultimate front row that's right here turned around facing you. Number one, think of how awkward that would be. Uh, but the, the sense that if you're on this front row, you don't need to receive the church, the teaching, you feel like your only job is to judge the people out there. And, and that's what's frustrating here, that they only want the best seats in the synagogues, and they want the places of honor at feast. This is that great comment from the book of James in the New Testament, where in the book of James, James tells the church, be really careful If there's a wealthy person that walks into your church and a poor person that walks into your church, be very careful that you don't give special honor or attention only to that wealthy person because you think you can get something from them. That's not how the church works. And these religious leaders, they wanted the places of honor. They wanted to look impressive when they went to banquets or they went to parties. What's the next verse, verse 40? What else do they do? They devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers, and they will, Mark says, or Jesus says here, they will receive the greater judgment or the greater condemnation. What else do we know about these religious leaders? They were eating the widows out of house and home. They were literally devouring them. They were taking from these widows who had almost nothing, and they were taking advantage of their hospitality and their generosity, and they were taking all of that income, all that food, For themselves. They were exploiting someone who's in a really vulnerable situation, and they wanted to make these really impressive long prayers. They wanted to impress other people with their religious language. Another thing that commentators think is going on in this situation is what they were doing is they were showing up to these widows' houses, and they were charging the widows for their super long prayers that they were, they were making. So imagine that, Myself or one of our leaders or one of our deacons showed up to a widow's home and says, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to charge you by the minute. You know, in a a true lawyer, sorry lawyers, uh, in a true like legal lawyer situation, I'm going to pray for you and the longer I pray for you, the more impressive it's going to be and you're going to pay me by the minute. This is the idea, you're just taking advantage of someone who's in a vulnerable situation. Okay, quick side note, quick side note. Let's talk about deacon ministry just for a minute. I know if you're not familiar with church life, you hear the word deacon, and and that could bring up all kinds of uh, surprising ideas Or what was it look like for a, a deacon to be in a church. In a church like Emmaus, we have certain people in the church, certain men in the church who are identified as deacons who are called as a church to serve in this role. You may have grown up in a church where the deacons had a good bit of governing power. They made a lot of decisions for the church. They were constantly battling with the pastor over what the church should do about particular situations. At Emmaus, our deacons, their main role is to care for widows. Like At the end of the day, that is the core of deacon ministry at Emmaus, is that widows who are in a difficult place, they have someone who is checking on them regularly, caring for their needs, doing whatever is necessary. The deacons at Emmaus also lead out in making sure needs in the church don't fall through the cracks, making sure people are served. Sometimes people will hear that you have, you know, 25 or 30 people serving as deacons, and they say, well, doesn't that actually hinder other people from serving? It could, but it better not. (laughs) It could, but it better not. The way deacon ministry works is deacon ministry in a church should accelerate service. It should create momentum for service in the church. It shouldn't create a bottleneck. As deacons serve, it leads others to be able to serve. Our church should grow in serving people because of the work that deacons are doing. I love the way David Platt, one of the a pastor up in Washington, D.C., the way he puts it. Pastors in a church are servant leaders. Deacons are leading servants. So in a church, Pastors serve as servant leaders, and deacons are leading servants. They are leading the way, creating momentum for service in the church. Why do I say this at Emmaus? Well, number one, we better not be a church that's devouring widows' houses, <laughs> and we better not be a church that's exploiting widows in, in any way. We're, we're not gonna stand for that in any way. So we have deacons who are seeking to do that. Also, the reason I say this is we have a vote coming up not this Sunday night, but next Sunday night on the next group of deacons here at Emmaus. We'd love for you to be a part of that. It's a great opportunity to find out more that God's doing in our church family, and I wanted to put that in front of you, but I also wanted to say this because if you haven't been around Emmaus, you may be unfamiliar with how deacons work, and so deacons are out there making sure we're not doing what is mentioned here in verse 40. Okay, go to verse 41. Let's keep rolling. So what happened in verse 41? Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. On the walls, as you exit, each of the exit doors here at Emmaus, we have a black box where people put their offering, or if you're a guest today and you fill out that little guest card and say, hey, would you contact me for prayer, or I wanna attend the lunch, you put in that little black box. The offering boxes that Jesus is talking about here, they're shaped like a trumpet. And so there would be 13 of these boxes that were placed around the treasury. And as you put your money in there, it would jingle jingle on the way down, you know, as like the money would go in. And there was this like impressive display of look how much money I'm putting in here. And so people would come along and they would put their offerings in th- these different 13 trumpet shaped receptacles that are around there. Verse 42, many rich people are putting in large sums of money and then a poor widow came Now, this is important. We just heard about a widow, what happened to them earlier because of the religious leaders. Now we have this poor widow who's coming and putting in two small copper coins, which make a penny. We're going to hear more about this widow in a minute, but let's keep going. Verse 43, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. They gave out out of the leftover. They gave out of the surplus, the overflow. It didn't hurt them in any way to give in this way. They gave a lot of money, but it was out of the surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And then chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is that imagery that the disciples look at this beautiful, massive temple complex. They could never imagine the temple going away. And Jesus says, Be careful about putting your pride there. Be careful about boasting in that building because one day that building's not gonna be there anymore. Point one this morning, point one this morning, as you think about God's work in your heart, beware of pride, especially religious pride. Here's what God's word is asking us to do in our hearts. Look inward and say, where is pride at work in my heart? (laughs) Where is religious pride at work in my heart? Where is religious pride at work in our church? Beware of pride. It is not the way of Christ. It's not the way of his church. What does pride look like? Well, showy we clothes, but more than showy clothes, it's just this look at me mentality. This idea that I'm primarily concerned about my appearance. I'm concerned about how people think about me. I want to draw attention to me instead of drawing attention to Jesus. That, that's the concern. That's what's going on here. I want people to be impressed by me more than I want them to look toward Jesus. You say, well, that, that wouldn't happen in a church. It does. It does. And we can all be guilty of it at, dif- at different times. Demanding honor. You've got to speak to me in a certain way. You've got to refer to me in a certain way. I need to be above everybody else just a little bit. The danger of that. This idea of I need the best seats at the church so I can turn around and judge everybody else instead of being in a position where you say, what I need most is to receive God's word. What I need most is to receive the Holy Spirit's work in my heart. I don't need to be judging other people until I've been in a position to receive God's word and God's spirit. This sense of entitlement, man, that'll get in the way in a hurry. The sense that I am do certain things, I'm owed certain things, as I of entitlement. Exploiting the weak, trying to be impressive, with our words, trying to be impressive with our religious language. We work really hard at Emmaus, and if we ever don't do this well, let me know, but we work really hard at Emmaus that if someone comes in here and they're not familiar with the Bible, you haven't been in church in a long time, we wanna make sure we're speaking about the things of God in a way that people can understand. Like, if you're ever in a situation and people are trying to impress you with their religious language, there's kind of some alarms that go off, like beware of what's going on there, that we're not doing that because we want to be prideful. We want to speak to people in a way that they can understand what's going on. Surplus-only giving. This is the approach to financial giving that says I'll give if I've got a little bit left over, or I'll give but I'm not going to give in a way that hurts or causes any type of, of need for sacrifice. We'll talk about this some more, but this is this idea of Really, this money is mine. If I have a little bit extra, I'll give some to the Lord. That's the mentality we're watching out for. And then this idea that we would take pride in traditions or buildings. What do you do when you're in a situation like we are where God's blessed you with a beautiful church building? Uh, I probably told you this before. Uh, I turn 41 tomorrow, so all my jokes are getting old uh, at this point. So <laughs> I don't have any new ones. Um, but the, people will tell me, man, Pastor Owen, you have a beautiful church. And usually, if I'm feeling snarky at the time, my response will be, well, some of them are, uh, you know. So, uh, we know that theologically, the word church is the people gathered together. That's the church. Now, what do people are, what are they saying when they refer to Emmaus and they say you have a beautiful church? They mean you have a really impressive building that was built in 2008, 2009. And, and we always have to think about what do we do with buildings like this? Well, the danger comes if we ever look at that building and that building becomes a source of pride, or that building stands in the way of what God wants to do. Because what's a building like this? And all the buildings we have around us and the work we're doing in the West property, what is all of that? It's a resource. It's nothing more, nothing less. It's a gift that God has given us that we want to receive and we want to steward. When people come to the Discover Emmaus launch, I always tell them, I would feel really bad about having these buildings around us and all the square footage if it sat empty during the week. That would be a major problem. But can I tell you, Emmaus, these buildings do not sit empty during the week. (laughs) Like that's one of my favorite parts about our church is how much these buildings are used. And so we can look at these buildings, and if we take pride in them or we say that building is our focus, there's a major problem. But if that building's a gift from the Lord and we're using it for his purposes, I pray that that would bring honor and glory to him. Okay, point number one, we're all susceptible to it. Beware of pride. Point number two, Jesus gives him another idea. He says, instead of being prideful, pursue humility. Let me show you what humility looks like. And this is what Jesus is doing in verse 41. In verse 41, he says, let me show you a different picture than these religious leaders, these scribes. And so he sat down opposite the treasury. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people. Just get this feeling of all these rich people who are coming, this huge crowd that's coming, and they're putting all of this money into the offering boxes. And then verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make just a penny. Kind of a strange translation there in the English standard. It's probably more equivalent to about a dollar or just over a dollar. But the main point is that she has put in all she has, and it's not very much. Then verse 43, look at what happens. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, verse 44, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had even all she had to live on. What a beautiful picture here. Here comes this widow. She's surrounded by this huge crowd putting in all this money, and she comes humbly with her small offering, everything she has her entire life, and she is surrendering it to the Lord. What's she doing? She is loving the Lord her God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, and with all of her strength. Last week, we talked about, what are we called to do? We're called to love God and love others. What is Mark done in his gospel? He says, do you want to know what it looks like to love God and love others? I'll show you. And he brings out this beautiful widow. We don't know if she's beautiful in appearance, but she is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord because she's brought all she has and she's given it to the Lord. Think about some of the other examples in the gospel of Mark. Think about the, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He comes and he wants to follow Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him to do? He says to go sell all that you have and, and give it to the poor. Give it to the work of the Lord. And what does that rich, rich young man do in, in Mark chapter 10? He can't do it. He goes away sad because he was rich. And here's this widow who's given herself fully to the Lord. She is doing what you find the church at Macedonia doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me show you a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's talking about the church in Macedonia, and he says, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. When you read a verse like that, you feel like all the parts don't fit together the way you would think that they would fit together. Here's a church that's experiencing terrible affliction. They have extreme poverty, but what else do they have in the middle of that? They have abundant joy because of the work that God has done in them. What they've experienced is they trusted in Jesus and experienced his salvation. And so even out of their poverty overflows an abundance of wealth. Just for a quick moment I want to talk about financial offerings giving in a church family. We run into a passage like this with this widow giving her last two coins, giving all she had. How do we think about financial giving in a church. One of the things we'll talk about next Sunday night at the business meeting when we vote for our deacons, we'll also talk about our finances from last year and what's going on this year and some incredible, incredible things to to report to you. But when we think about financial offerings in the church, the cost to the giver, scripture says, is greater than the amount given. In my experience pastoring, and admittedly, it's limited, but in my experience pastoring, the number one thing that keeps people from giving financially to the church is the statement, I don't have much to give. It's just, sometimes there's embarrassment. Sometimes it just feels like it's just not going to matter. There's a lot of people here who can give more than I can give. I don't have much to give. Can I tell you from Scripture, and specifically this morning from Mark chapter 12, it is not the amount that you give. It is the idea that what I have comes from the Lord, and I am going to give that. My life is going to overflow. Even if it's overflowing from a place of poverty, my life is going to overflow to the Lord. I'm going to give the first fruits, not the leftover of what I have, not if there's a little bit left at the end. The very first of what I have, I'm going to give as a free will offering to the Lord. No one's exploiting me. No one's manipulating me. No one's forcing me to give. I am giving because God is good and I want to see the church build up, and I want to see the gospel advance. God, let us give in those ways. One of the quotes we love here at Emmaus is that we have nothing to prove, we have no one to impress, just Jesus to serve. When you think about giving financially to the church, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to impress anybody. Your only calling is to serve Jesus and his church and the mission that he has put in front of us. And so we wanna be faithful in that. So we're gonna beware of pride. Emmaus, let's not, not be a church that's known for pride. Let's pursue humility. And the question is, how do you do that? And that leads us to our last point, our last, last point. Number three, you embrace the gospel. We are going to beware of pride, and we're gonna pursue humility by embracing the gospel. Because we know this passage isn't primarily about this widow giving money. We know it says here that she's given even her whole life. What does this passage point us toward? It points us toward what Jesus is going to do. Giving his life on the cross, what it looks like for him Not to come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Second Corinthians eight says, he became poor, Jesus became poor, he gave up everything so that by his poverty, you, you might become rich. Financially rich? No, probably not, but rich eternally. Rich in the things of the Lord. What is the gospel? What is the power of the gospel here? The good news of scripture is that we could never buy our way to heaven, we could never earn our way to heaven, we could never be impressive enough to be before the Lord, but he did that for us. He sent his son who became poor so that you could become rich, so that you could receive all the good things of the Lord, both now and forever. And so what do we do? We receive that. Here's what I want to call you to do this morning. I want to call you to two commitments Number one, I want to call you to believe that Jesus paid it all. That all you could ever need in life, Jesus is taking care of. Your sin, He died for on the cross. Your death, He has overcome through the resurrection. We are going to come together this morning, and we are going to say, based on this passage of Scripture, Jesus paid it all. And I believe that. And not only do I believe that, but that's where my hope is found for eternity, that's my life, that Jesus paid it all. And because Jesus paid it all, what's our response to that? I surrender all. My life only exists because God gave that life and God redeemed that life, Jesus paid it all. And because Jesus paid it all, everything that I have, everything I am, everything that I will do, I surrender it to the Lord. God, don't let me live for pride. Don't let us live for ourselves. Don't let us live so that people would be impressed by Emmaus. Let us live so that they would know that Jesus paid it all. If you're here this morning, and you are not a Christian, but this morning is the day that God is calling you to trust in him for salvation, we're going to stand up here in just a moment, and we're going to sing Jesus paid it all. Let me invite you to come, just to say, would you— I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to help you work through any questions that you're dealing with. Maybe you just want to come here to the front and pray. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all. And then we're going to turn right around and we're going to sing I surrender all. Because Jesus paid it all, I surrender everything to him. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we know that when we look at our lives, when we look at the world, when we think about church, Churches around the world, it's so easy for pride to come into a church, God. I I know this has to start in my heart. There have been way too many churches who have been hurt by pastors or leaders who were filled up with pride. So God, I pray, I pray for our church here that you would root out any type of pride, anything that says, look at me, versus look at Jesus. God, we want to live humbly before you. We want to live humbly before one another. And God, we know our only hope is because Jesus paid it all. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who has never become a Christian, never trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, as we've seen these words, God, that they would come, that they would respond. Maybe they respond after the psalms, after the dismissal. God, would you bring people to salvation? And God, I pray for us as a church that our commitment to you, because Jesus paid it all, our commitment to you is I surrender all. God, that we give our lives fully to you. Our money, our schedule, our work, our families, everything that we are, God, we surrender to you completely. God, we trust you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.